I would ask you tonight, do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, verses 1 through 48, which is a monstrosity of a passage. Uh, tonight we're beginning this new series in the book of 1 Kings, and we'll be in this series for probably six or seven months-ish uh, through to the summer, but that's not to say that we're going to spend every single week of those six or seven months in 1 Kings. Uh, we'll spend about five weeks in it, then we're going to take a break and walk through Advent, and then in the new year we'll jump back into it, and then we'll take a couple breaks throughout to the summer. So it's not six months of unbroken kings, uh, but this is kind of the text that we're going to live in, this Old Testament section of Scripture in, really from now until May, roughly speaking. There's, a, there's an early church leader, a guy by the name of Marcion, and Marcion in the early centuries of the church basically came out and said, listen, the Old Testament and the God that it talks about is not the same God in the New Testament. It's somebody different. Uh, the God in the Old Testament is just way too angry, and he just seems really, really judgmental and mean-spirited. And so this must be some other God, and because of that, we should probably just throw the Old Testament out and just pay attention to the New Testament. He was a church leader. He didn't stay a church leader for very long. He was condemned as a heretic because that's, that's a bad idea. That's a bad approach to the scriptures. And, I mean, if you're a Christian in this room, um, you probably hear Marcion's proposal and say, yeah, that won't work. That's, that's not the best way to approach the Bible. There's something about the Old Testament that is really central to understanding the New Testament. There's not this disconnect between the two. But I would, I would venture to say that, that for many of us, even though we might say Marcion is wrong, we really do struggle to figure out what the Old Testament has to say to us now. It's a whole lot easier to read like one of Paul's letters or one of the Gospels than it is to work through a book like 1 Kings. That for many of us, the Old Testament seems like a bunch of stories that are somehow connected in some way, but what that way is, is, is far beyond our power to comprehend. That's for like Bible scholars and pastors and things, and we'll just stick with the Sermon on the Mount, which is a good place to stick. I like the Sermon on the Mount. And very often when we approach the Old Testament, just because we struggle to understand like what it is that's going on here, we tend to take the stories in the Old Testament and we sort of just turn them into the ancient equivalent of Aesop's fables. And I guess Aesop's fables are also ancient, so it's twice as ancient. And we say things like, well... Be like David, slay your giants. Um, don't be like Samson and cut your hair. I mean, like we have this weird sort of way of taking these stories and going, ah, maybe there's like some, some kernels in here of like life advice, but, but how this relates to Jesus tends to just be totally beyond us. And yet, Jesus and, and the apostles were pretty steadfast and resolute in this idea that the Old Testament is not meant to just be sort of a book of like helpful advice about bad choices people made and things that you shouldn't repeat. Uh, Jesus and the apostles are both really clear about the fact that the Old Testament it is really kind of a movie trailer to what's going to happen in the New Testament. It's not meant to terminate on itself any more than you were meant to watch the trailer of whatever movie is coming out recently that the young people are excited about and not see the movie but that it ultimately is something that's supposed to bear witness to Christ, it's supposed to point us to Jesus, not just give us some sort of moral ideas about slaying our giants and not cutting our hair or whatever else might, we might stumble on. And so 1 Kings 
in its own special way, is there to point us to Jesus. It's there to bear witness to this man that we claim is Lord and God. Well, what is 1 Kings? If we're going to spend a long time in it over the next few months, probably a fair question to ask. What is it that we're going to be working through? The answer to that question depends on who you ask that question. So, strictly speaking, 1 Kings is a historical book. It's a book recounting this sort of window in the history of Israel where they had a whole lot of kings. And as you'll see, most of them are really, really bad. Um, First Kings is not actually in the Hebrew Bible or in its original form a book unto itself. First and Second Kings are one book. Uh, We're not going to do Second Kings because I'll have retired by the time we finish it because it's like collectively like 90 or 100 chapters. And if it took us a year to do 12 chapters and 2 Corinthians, we're, we're never going to do it all. But it's this one book that's recounting the history of Israel, but, but it's not an exhaustive history of Israel. It assumes that you sort of know where this nation called Israel has come from and what has led up to the moments in which 1 Kings begins. And I realize not all of us do. So, so let me just give you this sort of brief tour of the history of this nation called Israel that all these Christians are constantly talking about. So, there is this man by the name of Abraham sometime around 2000 BC, roughly. And he receives this word from God, says, leave your family. Um, Not your family as in your wife and kids, but sort of your extended relatives, which I'm I'm sure some of you married people would be totally cool with. And he says, I'm calling you out of the country you're in to start your own country, which, what sort of world is that like, that you can just start your own country? That doesn't happen anymore. Like, you, you kind of just have the countries you have. Um, I'm calling you out of the nation you're in to to begin a new nation. And this nation that you're going to kind of sit as the father of is going to be different from the nations around it. But but not different just for the sake of being weird, not, not different for the sake of being controversial. You're going to be different so that you can bless these other nations. And so Abraham goes, and, and the rest of the Bible traces the history of this nation that God has called out of the nations to be a blessing for the nation. So it follows them through slavery in Egypt, and it follows them through everything documented in the masterful film, The Prince of Egypt, where he, the Israel is delivered from slavery. I really do like Prince of Egypt. That wasn't a knock. Um, And then it follows them through this wandering in the wilderness as they finally land in this land of Canaan, which has been promised to them. And they sort of establish themselves as a nation. And they're trying to follow these laws that God has given them so that they will be different for the blessing of the nations around them. Here's Israel's problem. It's the problem that everybody in middle school feels. I don't want to be different from the people around me. And then later, that's sort of turned into a virtue, and you're like, yeah, I'm different. I wear, like, a tie with my T-shirt, Avril Lavigne style. I'm cool. I'm different. But for Israel, they, they're continually fighting this urge to not want to be different. We don't want to be unlike the nations around us. And so there comes this point where Israel has not had a king, although everyone around them has. And Israel sort of pitches a temper tantrum like a, a middle schooler and says, we want a king like everyone else. I want to wear a tie over my tuxedo t-shirt like everyone else. And so God gives them a king, this man named Saul. And Saul, if you read the description of him in the Bible, it's a little uncomfortable because it goes into great detail about how attractive Saul is, and that he's like a foot taller than every man in Israel, and he's like this great hunter, and he's probably super buff, and, and he's really handsome. I guess by ancient standards, I realize standards of beauty change, so... Who knows what he actually looked like other than being tall with long hair. 
and he's a terrible king. Like Israel lays hold of Saul, and they're like, why wouldn't we want the best-looking person in our country to be our king? Turns out, he makes for a terrible king. He turns from the Lord. He sort of rebels against the commandments of God. He, he violates all these things that God had laid out for their kings. And so God chooses a new king. And it's this guy named David. And David is the exact opposite of Saul in almost every way. Um, God calls this man named Nathan, who you'll, you'll see in our text for the evening, to go and anoint the new king. This was sort of like inauguration day in Israel. When, when a prophet poured oil on the head of the king, that was God's way of saying, you're the king now. And, and God calls Nathan to David's home farm. And Nathan says to the, the father of the house, hey, I need to see your sons. One of them's going to be a king. And David's dad is, I guess, so unimpressed by his son David that he just forgets to bring David out. And Nathan says, are these all your sons? And he's like, oh, no, they're not all of mine. There's this other kid in the field named David. He plays the harp. He's weird. Um, you don't want to see him. Like, if we're going to try and one-up Saul, who's super good looking with flowing locks, we, you don't want the harp kid in the field. Um, and yet that's the person that God calls to be king, is this shepherd boy named David. And David is not just this shepherd, um, but he's this poet sort of in the depths of his being. We still sing some of the songs that David wrote. Uh, we read at the beginning of our services some of the songs of David. Granted, they're in English and not Hebrew, um, but they're the product of this king that God anoints, and he turns out to be the absolute best king that Israel has ever known. He's just, he's kind, he's good, uh, he's mighty in battle, he defends Israel against her enemies. He is absolutely beloved. Not perfect, uh, David does lots of bad things. But on the whole, David tries to serve the Lord. And he is Israel's favorite king ever. He is what John F. Kennedy is to Democrats and what Ronald Reagan is to Republicans, but just to all of Israel. They love David. But 1 Kings begins with David on the edge of death. Uh, this, this great king that Israel has so loved and so cared for, it's obvious that he's coming to the end of his time. So in that sense, 1 Kings is a history book, but it's not really just a history book. Like if you'd asked, asked, an, asked, if you'd asked an ancient Jewish person, what is 1 Kings? They would have told you it's, it's a prophetic book. They would have lumped it together with things like Isaiah and Joel and Ezekiel and all these portions of the Bible that are super crazy and hard to understand. And, and the reason why we don't see it that way is because we sort of have this contorted view of prophecy. Like in our minds, prophecy is the sort of thing that Miss Cleo does on her telephone specials. Is that, prob that probably doesn't resonate with people anymore. Miss Cleo is this TV psychic, and you could call her, and she would give you a free tarot card reading and tell you what was going to happen in the future. And in our mind, that's the sort of thing that prophecy is. It's a predictive thing. It's a telling of what's to come. But in the ancient world, in the Bible, only like 2 or 3% of what's called prophecy actually has anything to do with the future. Most of it has to do with what you need to do here and now. And so you see these men and these women raised up in the, the book of First Kings, and they're going to the, the kings, the good ones and the bad ones, and saying, you need to change need to repent. We as a nation need to turn from these things. They're speaking prophetically without actually saying, hey, here's what's coming in the future. Peter Lightheart, who's a, just a great uh, theologian, describes the message of the prophets like this. The prophets tell Israel, you have sinned, you as a nation are already dead, and you must cling to the God who raises the dead. 
he goes on, he says, the prophets systematically dismantle Israel's confidence in everything but the omnipotent mercy and patience of God. And we'll walk through the prophets as we walk through this text. And some of what they say is gonna sound harsh, it's gonna sound a little bit judgmental, and yet it is what Israel needs to hear and it is what we need to hear as well. Because the gospel is not about good people being made better. It is about dead people being made alive. It's about sinners in the hands of a merciful and patient God, but a God whose patience and mercy are not synonymous with being passive and inactive. And so we step into the book of 1 Kings. It begins by kind of jumping right into the action. It says, now David was old and advanced in years, And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king. Let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may keep warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. And they found Abishag the Shunammite. They brought her to the king, a young woman who was very beautiful. She was in the service of the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. So 1 Kings just sort of launches in with this mighty figure, King David, who's beloved by all of Israel, and he's on the verge of death. This man who fought wars and tore down kingdoms and defended cities can now no longer take care of himself. Uh, He's sitting in bed, and as he hovers on the edge of death, sort of his mortality manifests itself in that he can't keep warm no matter how hard he tries. And this kind of weird solution is proposed to that problem. And I mean, let's just be honest about this. This is kind of weird when you read it. I've read 1 Kings like 10 times in the last few months, and I always just sort of laugh when I read this because, because something about this feels like, it's, like it ought to be a little bit like sexual in nature. It feels like there should be a section of, on Craigslist for kings who can't get warm. <laughs> we'll cut that out of the podcast. Um, And yet, that's not really what's going on here. Um, Actually, if you read ancient, like, medical textbooks from this period in human history, this was the recommendation. Like, this was the prescription for people who who couldn't get warm, who were suffering from some sort of an ailment. Now, they don't know about communicable diseases, and maybe he's got some sort of, maybe he's running a fever. That's not good for Abishag the Shunammite uh, to just hang out with this guy running a fever. Um, But the fact is, I mean, if you've ever sat in a tent in the middle of the night when the temperature drops and you realize that on your own you can't produce enough body heat to stay warm, you start to feel a little less weird about hugging the person that's next to you in the tent. And this is a period in human history where, what are they going to tell them? Turn up your electric blanket? That doesn't work. Take your Flintstone vitamins? It doesn't work. And so, so this is just the common medicine of the day. Well, if you can't get warm, we'll find somebody who'll just kind of sit in bed with you. But David's sort of illness here, as he sort of hovers on the edge of death, his frailty has more to say to us than just, man, this is kind of a weird approach to ancient medicine. David is the beloved king of Israel. David is the man who, for the entirety of these people's lives, was steadfast. He was a bedrock. He, He was 
the, the president or the king that everyone loved. And here he is, unable to care for even his most basic needs. Can't even keep himself warm anymore. You know, I'm, I'm consistently shocked by how out of touch a lot of Christian culture seems to be with the Bible that we profess to believe. Um, there is sort of this sanitized view of life that, that never really takes seriously how difficult life actually is. And, and you sort of see it when you read Christian blogs or you walk through a Christian bookstore or you listen to Christian radio. There is this sense where we try to take the bitterness out of life. Like the bad never is actually as bad as it actually is. And man, somebody in the middle of suffering walks into a Christian bookstore, listens to Christian radio, turns on Christian pop songs. You know what I'm talking about. Like, this is out of touch with the actual pain of the world. But when we take the bitterness of life out, we fail to truly grasp the sweetness of life and the sweetness of the gospel. When life is not as bitter as it in fact is, we don't see how sweet the gospel truly is and how much we've truly been saved from and how much greater our hope actually is. So allow me to be dark here for a moment because the Bible's being dark here for a moment. This is something you need to recognize as you look at David's frailty. The fact is that you and I and everyone we know and everyone we love and everyone we respect and admire will one day be where David is. For some of us, that'll come more quickly. But for all of us, that will come in due time. And when that day comes, and you can't even keep yourself warm, the wells that you once went to to satisfy you in your life will have dried up. So if you've defined your joy by things like being super athletic, it's not gonna work anymore. I mean, if you've defined yourself by somebody who hashtag loves to travel, you're not going anywhere. You know, if you've defined your life by um, even something like your sexual prowess, David knew her not. That, even that is gone from David. So, so the question is, what is it that we can lay hold of in this life that will truly see us through to the very end? Will truly carry us through um, the door of death? You know, there's this great preacher, um, he's since passed away, named Martin Lloyd-Jones, that uh, was just well-known within the UK and really across the world for being super uh, engaging and thoughtful. He's trained as a medical doctor and uh, ultimately leaves the call of doing practicing medicine to become a pastor. Uh, writes an enormous amount, like just the collected volumes of Martin Lloyd-Jones are a lot. And he travels consistently, preaching across the world. And in the last few years of his life, he was so ill and so frail that he could only get out of his bed for about three hours a day. And so he would wake up, he would put on his three-piece suit, because he was a proper British man. He would go sit at his desk, he would write for the remainder of his strength, and then he would get back in the bed and sleep the rest of the day or sit in bed the rest of the day. And one of his biographers... Um, asked him, like, you used to do so much. Like, you're Martin Lloyd-Jones. You're the preacher. You're the author. You're the traveling evangelist. And now you're just here in this bed. How, how are you not in the depths of despair? And his response is, is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, where Jesus says to the apostles, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you. 
but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. That is to say, don't be excited about the things that you're presently doing, but be excited about the fact that you are known by God and that you know God. That is what the grounding of your joy is. And for David, you, you see this as you go through the text. He's at the end. What once defined him as the mighty king of Israel is not there anymore. And yet what truly defines him, that he knows the Lord has not left him. So as David is sitting in bed, we're told in verse 5, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father, which would be David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you thus done so? David is the sort of parent, apparently, who never says no to anything. So he may be a great king. He's a bad dad. He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom, which is David's oldest son who died. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Ray, David's mighty men, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen, fattened cattle, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which was beside Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Okay, so David is hovering on the verge of death in his castle or palace. And outside of the palace, there is this question happening of who's gonna be king next? Like everybody knows David's not gonna last much longer. Who's next? Now in sort of traditional monarchy, it's a pretty clear path of succession. The oldest son of the king becomes king after him. There's some problems with that. Namely, David's oldest son is dead already. That would be Absalom. Um, That leaves... Uh, Adonijah as the next person in line, the next oldest son. But Israel is not a normal nation. Uh, Israel doesn't follow this normal pattern of whoever's next in line gets to be king, at least not always. There are times where God says, yeah, that's not going to work. I'm picking the king for you. <laughs> Probably because they would pick a bad king. They always do. And, and so it's, it's important to recognize this, that even though Adonijah is next in line, he's the next oldest son, He's not the one that God chose to be king. So when Adonijah exalts himself and says, I will be king, pay attention to what's happening here. He's saying, I don't like God's plan for our country. I think I can do better than my brother Solomon. I'm gonna do this myself. So so to say that Adonijah exalted himself is to say that Adonijah looked at the plans of God for this nation and said, I can do better. I'll be a better king. I'm gonna take this one by the horns. And, and look at what happens. He, he gathers for himself all of these men who are willing to help him sort of overthrow the way that God's ordained for things to be. And they gather at this place called the Serpent Stone. And he invites everybody but his brother David. Now, that, that may be something you glance over reading this passage initially. Uh, that is not going to be something that um, Solomon, rather than David, it's not gonna be something that Solomon ignores. Because the way the ancient world works is anybody who's a threat to you being king, you kill. And a good sign that you don't like somebody is that you won't sit down at a table and share a meal with them. So the fact that all of Solomon's brothers are invited and Solomon isn't, that's a death sentence. That is Adonijah saying, you're a threat to what I'm trying to do. Plan on dying once this works out. 
And pay attention to where this happens. It happens at this place called the serpent stone. Here we see this echo of Eden. You know, it's, it's in Eden that Adam and Eve say to God, we don't like the way that you've set up the rules of the garden. We think we can do better. And it's at the serpent stone that Adonijah says, I don't like who you appointed to be king. I think I can do better. But the fact is, what Adonijah does, where he exalts himself, he says, I will be king. This is the essence of sin. This is at its very heart what sin is. It is what we ourselves do every time we walk in sin. We see, especially when we know what the call of scripture is, we see the way that God has called us to live. We see the command that he's laid before us and we say, I think I can do better. I will be king. We exalt ourselves. And, and I mean, let's just be frank here and call sin what it is. In that view, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is absolute rebellion in its very nature against the command of the king and an utter rejection of the way that the king has decided that the kingdom ought to be governed. It's a, it's a declaration of war. And whenever you and I walk in things like anger or withhold forgiveness from people, uh, whether we walk through sexual sin and it's something that we don't repent of, whenever we gossip, whenever we slander, we are there with Adonijah at the serpent stone saying, I will be king and I will do what I want because I think that what you've commanded can probably be done better. But Adonijah's um, plan doesn't go unchallenged. We're told in verse 11 that Nathan, who is a prophet, who's been a friend of David for most of his life, but the sort of friend that tells David things he doesn't want to hear, Nathan says to Bathsheba, who is one of David's wives and Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Remember, they didn't get invited to the party. And that's not the equivalent of you like not getting invited to the cool kids party in high school where you'll get over it in a few weeks. This is a death sentence. You're not coming to the party because I'm killing you. He says to Bathsheba, go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? And while you're still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. And so Bathsheba goes to the king and begins this conversation. Now, um, some people have looked at this. Um, I'm thinking of like a more liberal New Old Testament scholar like Walter Brueggemann, and they say Adonijah and Bathsheba are sort of just taking advantage of David being old and senile. Uh, and they go in and they say, hey, didn't you say this? And David's too old to remember whether he did or didn't say it. And so he's just like, oh, I guess so, why not? Um, I don't think that quite works. I don't think that interpretation makes sense of it because had Solomon not been appointed, um, he wouldn't have gotten left out from his brother's feast. The fact that he's been left out says that Adonijah recognizes that Solomon is the rightful heir and is planning on killing him so that it doesn't happen. Uh, and you can kind of go to other portions of scripture like First Chronicles uh, where David has this conversation with Solomon and says that, that the Lord has appointed you to sit on the throne. So, 
David is sick in bed. Adonijah is trying to overthrow the future king. And Nathan and David's wife, Bathsheba, say, we have to do something. And so Bathsheba goes and she explains to David what's happening. By all appearances, David has no idea. He's totally incompetent. He's totally passive. Nathan comes in and confirms what has been said. And finally, at long last, David gets out of bed and does something. And King David answers to Nathan, call Bathsheba back to me. So she came in and in the king's presence stood before the king. Verse 29, the king swore saying, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground, paid homage to the king and said, may my Lord, the king live forever. And so David calls to himself all of his leaders, all of the people who have the authority to sort of make this change of power and actually uh, crown the next king of Israel. And we get to verse 38. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had King Solomon ride on David's mule and brought him to Gihon, which is a spring in the city of Jerusalem. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on the pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. So the, the text begins with this chaos of who is going to be king? Who is going to take the place of David? And with one word from the king, the question is answered. Solomon. Solomon has always been the one that was going to be king, but now, publicly, he's anointed and he rides through the city of Jerusalem on a mule. You know, a thousand years later, a carpenter from Nazareth, who is the true son of David, will be anointed by the Spirit, and he too will ride into Jerusalem. And from the back of a donkey hanging on a Roman cross, out of an empty tomb that belongs to a rich man, he will dethrone the serpent who tried to steal his kingdom from him. You know, whatever good we'll see in the next few chapters of Solomon's life is not meant to make you say, man, Solomon was pretty cool. It's meant to point you towards the greater Solomon, the wiser king, Jesus, who cannot be dethroned, whose rule and reign is not in question. You know, the way I see it, when we come face to face with this true king of the whole world, this greater Solomon, the man Christ Jesus, we have really two ways that we can respond. And they both play themselves out in this text. We can see the kingship of Jesus and we can respond like Adoniah and exalt ourselves and say, I will be king instead. And, and you may live most of your life under that delusion that you are in fact king and master of your own destiny and that you are the sole arbiter and determiner of truth for you. But you should know that just because you live like a king, it doesn't make you one. Um, and you should know that one day your false claim to the throne is gonna be torn down. The other option for us when we see the true and better Solomon is to respond like the crowds, to blow the trumpets, and to cry out, long live the king. And to rejoice in the streets for the king that's been enthroned. 
I pray that we would be a people of that second category who celebrate the true king of the whole world, whose rule is not in question, whose wisdom cannot be fathomed.